Hi, I'm Marcelo Jauregui-Volpe, and this is The Climb Divide, Season 2. Last week's episode talked about COP28, the United Nations Climate Summit that had just gotten underway in Dubai. There was what organizers dubbed a first-of-its-kind event added to this year's agenda, the first local climate action summit. This two-day event brought together mayors and governors from over 60 countries to highlight the role local leaders play in meeting climate goals. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser participated in the summit as a part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors delegation. On Friday, December 1st, the first day of the summit, Mayor Bowser released Carbon-Free D.C., which lays out the city's plans to reach carbon neutrality by 2045. By carbon neutrality, the district government is referring to its plan for offsetting those greenhouse gases it doesn't eliminate altogether, so that the city's carbon emissions, if all goes as planned, will balance out at zero by 2045. Reaching carbon neutrality can involve actions like tree planting or forest preservation that can absorb carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but still requires deep cuts in emissions. The district hopes to achieve this by making major changes in our buildings, transportation, and housing, among others. This new plan builds on earlier environmental plans, such as Sustainable DC 2.0 and Climate Ready DC. While we have a ways to go, the district has already made some strides. As of 2020, the district had reduced its carbon emissions by 40% compared to 2006, and the government says it's on pace to achieve a 60% reduction by 2030. The Department of Energy and Environment started inventorying emissions in 2006, which has become the baseline from which to compare reductions. But the closer we get to carbon neutral, the more difficult those final emission reductions will get. Carbon-free DC warns that more action is needed to prevent these emission reductions from plateauing. One of the areas that will need a lot of change is building energy use, which the report states accounts for 71% of the city's greenhouse gas emissions. Transportation accounts for 24%, and waste disposal accounts for 5%. The DC Department of Energy and Environment says that natural gas is the second largest source of city emissions, after electricity. Natural gas has had a reputation as a transition fuel that emits less carbon dioxide than coal or oil when it's burned. Though its largest component is methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas, and recent studies have shed light on methane emissions from drill sites and the underground distribution networks that transport natural gas into neighborhoods and homes. In February of 2022, the Beyond Gas DC coalition released the results from a gas leak detection study, where they worked with residents across all eight wards for a year to test for leaks in gas access points on streets and sidewalks. The citizen scientists found hundreds of gas leaks over the course of a year. More than 10 of these leaks met or surpassed the methane concentration threshold where an explosion could occur. This concern over safe air quality doesn't end when you leave the outdoors. Many studies have been pointing to how the gas appliances in our homes, like our stoves, are actually polluting our air indoors. Here in D.C. and, and elsewhere, it also is a health concern because even not considering the fact that methane is a super greenhouse gas when it leaks, when you burn it in appliances to heat your home or cook, it makes pollutants that pollute the air. So gas stoves in our kitchens, right smack in the middle of our living area, are emitting nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, small amounts of benzene. That was Barbara Briggs with Beyond Gas DC. This past Saturday, I met with Barbara and Sierra Club DC chapter members Katie Meyer and Mark Rodefer 
at the Petworth Library in Northwest DC, where they were speaking with residents about how they can get involved in Beyond Gas DC's campaigns. One of the ways that Beyond Gas has been illustrating the extent of this indoor air pollution is through at-home tests. Residents living in DC or the Maryland suburbs can sign up to have their kitchen air tested while the gas stove is on. Katie herself had her home tested. I had my home tested a couple months ago and it was absolutely shocking to find out that my indoor air quality for nitrogen dioxide was three times that safe limit set by the EPA. So that definitely has informed how I relate to this issue as well as I cook in my own kitchen and I've been using a single burner induction cooktop to protect myself as well as anytime I I use my oven turning on the vent fan, opening up a window. You have this device here, so how does it work? You just set it next to the stove or do you have to hold it up? How does the... It's a handheld device. This is the measurement head for nitrogen dioxide. The air goes in one side, it measures it, which is magic, and I don't know the chemistry of it, and it goes out the other side. You put this device about five feet flat and about five feet away from the expected source, in other words, from the gas burner, from the burner in this case, and you let it sit. And our method is we take one measurement, we turn on the stove, and what we're doing is two, we turn on two burners and the oven at 350, which we figure approximates a family meal. There are some families um, we found, especially in the immigrant community, where they don't use their ovens, and so we have a second protocol where we just turn on four burners. Let it sit for 15 minutes, we take a measurement. Let it sit for another 15 minutes, take another measurement. So it's when the oven has been going for 30 minutes. Then we turn off the burners in the oven and take a third measurement when the oven's been off for 15 minutes, just to give us a sense of how quickly the nitrogen dioxide dissipates. So that's how we do it. Total test takes 45 minutes, so it's pretty easy. Today, December 7th, Beyond Gas DC is advocating at the Wilson Building, where the offices of the mayor and DC council are located. They're pushing for the advancement of the Healthy Homes and Residential Electrification Amendment Act. The act would require the Department of Energy and Environment to replace gas appliances with electric ones in at least 30,000 low-income homes in D.C. That's significant because, as Ola Cultura has been reporting, there's a ton of research that shows how here in the nation's capital and around the country and the world, low-income residents are already suffering and will continue to bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change. Given the clear connections between where environmental hazards like flooding, heat islands, and poor air quality occur, and where communities of color, immigrants, and the poor live, it's understandable why the D.C. government has so many just transition plans and programs. But progress in transforming the city's infrastructure and reducing emissions has been uneven, critics say. Our electricity is going the right direction, has been since 2018. But in D.C. and in much of the country, we're doing almost nothing on getting our buildings off of fossil fuels. So if we have any hope of meeting these targets, we have to take care of that. And that's actually one of the hardest things to do, right? You know, people buy a car, I don't know, every 10 or 15 years, some people less. You know, our electricity is getting greener. You know, a furnace can last 20 or 30 years, a gas furnace. So we need to be doing this now. 
There's also been concerns that political will is faltering, as other issues take precedence, such as the affordable housing crisis, rising crime, and what to do about DC's falling tax revenue. Back in February, the district's chief financial officer, Glenn Lee, revised the city's revenue forecast downward by more than $460 million for fiscal years 2024, 2025, and 2026, blaming it on a generally more pessimistic economic outlook and declining real estate taxes. DC's declining tax revenue has already threatened some of the district's marquee efforts when it comes to addressing climate change. Earlier this year, the Mural Bowser administration tried to put a three-year pause on implementing the city's building energy performance standards, designed to help the city meet climate change goals, like the ones Mayor Bowser unveiled in Dubai on December 1st. While the DC Council pushed back against that move, the local government's funding crunch has led to budget cuts this year from a number of programs, including the DC Department of Energy and Environment's Flood Smart Homes program. The DC government has widely promoted FloodSmart as a way to address equity in their flood mitigation work, since the program prioritizes homes in the district's floodplains, the majority of which are in its two poorest wards, Ward 7 and 8. According to the Department of Energy and Environment, it completed 65 FloodSmart assessments, 10 installations, and gave out 70 flood barriers and emergency kits before funding ran out at the end of the district's last fiscal year, at the end of September. The current waitlist for assessments exceeds 100. This agency's staffers told residents at a Ward 7 public meeting at the Fauntleroy Center in November that while they continue providing flood-proofing assessments, new funding to help residents pay for installing flood-proofing equipment through the FloodSmart program isn't expected until next fall despite the waiting list of residents trying to get government help with flood-proofing their homes. Besides the funding issues, the city's tree cover is declining again, after several years of progress in restoring its tree canopy, as we reported in episode 2 this season. While the factors fueling the tree canopy decline may be complex, it's also a sign that things are moving in the wrong direction, according to local environmentalists. Against this backdrop of what looks like wavering support for making the choices that will get DC to be carbon neutral, supporters of the Healthy Homes Act are gearing up for what may be an uphill battle. The coalition supporting the bill is led by the Sierra Club, Washington Interfaith Network, and Interfaith Power and Light. So in early 2019, we started the Beyond Gas DC campaign designed to transition buildings off of fossil fuels, which is mostly methane gas. The industry calls it natural gas, but it's methane gas that's fracked in various places, you know, like Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Texas, and piped into our homes and burnt to provide heating. So with our electricity moving to 100% renewable sources, we thought, okay, gas will never be clean, right? We need to transition from the fossil fuels, the gas, to clean and efficient electric systems, things like heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, and induction stoves. One recent step DC took towards making this energy transition was the Clean Energy DC Building Code Amendment Act of 2022, which will require new buildings to be net zero by the end of 2026. But the issue is that, you know, in 2045, when we're supposed to achieve carbon neutrality, most of the buildings that we'll have in DC, they've already been built as of today. So of course, when you're in a hole, stop digging, we need to get new buildings off of gas, but we need to do something about the existing buildings too. And so then we started a campaign to try to pass legislation in the DC Council called the Healthy Homes Act. And that is designed to deal with existing buildings, not new buildings. Councilmember Charles Allen introduced the bill this past February. For the act to actually become a law, 
It has to be greenlit by a specific committee it was assigned to, then added to the legislative meeting agenda by a committee composed of all council members, go through two rounds of voting in the council legislative meeting, then get approved by the mayor, and finally survive a 30-day congressional review period. In September, dozens of local groups signed a letter urging the council to pass the bill and use already available funds to support it. The DC Council website lists the bill as under council review. Beyond Gas DC hopes that the advocacy today will move the bill forward so that it's on pace to go through the two rounds of council votes before budget meetings begin in March. We are pressing to get it through the Committee on Transportation and the Environment this year. So this is a health concern. It also becomes an environmental justice concern because the asthma, COPD, lung disease, hypertension, the diseases that are caused or aggravated by exposure to nitrogen dioxide and these other pollutants, these diseases are already suffered in higher proportion by DC's low-income communities. So getting our low-income communities off gas, it's important for all residents, but like Mark said, you know, helping DC residents and lower and moderate income DC residents get off gas and get off gas first is actually a justice issue as, you know, as, as well as important for climate and a general health issue. Proponents of the bill have also touted the cost-benefit electrification retrofits can have for low and middle income residents. According to Rewiring America, these adaptations can save households $1,800 a year on average. We'll keep following this bill in addition to doing more reporting on methane gas leaks in the district. Next week's episode will be the last one of this season, and it'll cover a decades-long fight to bring attention to air quality concerns in Ivy City, and a DC Council bill that seeks to address communities that have been historically overburdened by pollution. The episode will feature an interview with Ivy City resident, activist, and advisory neighborhood commissioner Sabrina Rhodes. Cresaw is very nauseating to me now. Like at first I can go by there and I could smell it. I knew that's what it was. And I was like, that's the chemical smell. Now, every time I go past there, I want to throw up. And council member Zachary Parker. We know residents in wards five, seven, and eight and parts of ward four who share the overwhelming majority of overburdened communities deserve clean and healthy communities. And that is the vision and the purpose of my time for, and the purpose of my time here on the council is to ensure we all have access to healthy communities and have a shared quality of life. And we know that's currently not the reality. The Climate Divide is produced and edited by me. Claudia Peralta Torres provided additional editing and sound mixing support. Christine McDonald is a series editor and executive director of Ola Cultura. Members of the Society and Culture team in Ola Cultura's Storytelling Program for Experiential Learning also contribute to this podcast. This project is supported by Spotlight DC and the Pulitzer Center.